0: Hey, what's up, Harbor City family? Excited to be uh, back with you with our Beyond the Sermon podcast. I'm Pastor Jonathan. I'm joined by a special guest this week. This is Pastor Tyler
1: English. Say what's up. What's up? Hopefully, a a recurring guest, huh? Hey, well, it's going to see how you do, man. Yeah, yeah. All right, trial run. Okay. Well, at least we got an easy one with Jonah. That's right. That's right. And speaking of Jonah, should we dive in? Uh, Uh, Pun intended. Um, Yeah, let's dive in. John, actually, I have a couple questions for you. Actually, did you know that uh, Jonah was my favorite Bible story growing up? Um, And I kind of put it on level with, you know, Santa Claus, Tooth Fairy, things like that, because it was like, oh, let's read this story as as it is, because obviously a guy's not going to get swallowed by a fish. And spit out three days later. Right. Especially when you watch the VeggieTales version. Right. So my first question is this. Is this story
0: real? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, understanding genre in literature is really helpful to read and, and understand what the literature is trying to communicate. So we said this in the sermon, but you, know, you don't read a proverb the same way that you read the law. A proverb like, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. We don't read or understand that the same way that we would understand something like, thou shall not commit adultery. One is a law, and one is a wisdom principle. So what is the genre of Jonah? Well, it is uh, has always been grouped in the minor prophets, the, the 11 other minor prophets. But Jonah is also unique, Tyler, among the minor prophets. It doesn't really read the way that any of them read. Uh, most of them are what we would call prophetic oracles for or against a place or a people. Jonah is a little bit more of a narrative. As a matter of fact, it actually begins... Um, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, which is a formula that we actually see picked up in the historical books, First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and Chronicles. It doesn't begin the same way that the other prophets begin, and so Jonah, uh, the way it is written and constructed, is historical, but it is going to tell you a story. Um, it is a prophetic book, but it also, in chapter two, includes a psalm, and so it's. Uh, it, It is unique among the canon of Scripture and what genre that it represents. And again, most people, when asking the question of genre, what they're really asking is the question you just asked, is the story real? Are these events meant to be real? Or is this more like allegory or fable? And so one of the things that we would have to say to that is that it does not read like a fable. And so examples, you know, if you were to think about your favorite fairy tale, there's not a lot of details, you know. Jack and Jill went up a hill. It's not Jack, the son of Jane, and you know Jill, just or the the, the Jack, the, the the son of Tom, and Jill, the daughter of Jane. Right? Um, there's not a lot of details, and so the formula that the book of Jonah begins with lets you know from the beginning that this isn't just any Jonah. This is Jonah, the son of Amittai, that that connects with the record of the prophet in Second Kings chapter fourteen, verse twenty-five. So this is a real historical figure. It's written in a literary style that is relating real historical events, but it's written in a way that is meant to teach us something. It's not like a investigative report where it's just meant to record what happened. On August 7th, Tyler and Jonathan recorded a podcast. It's not written that way, but it is historical,
1: but it is written to teach and to instruct. Well, that's good. Well, how about this? So you, you said you alluded to a mention of him in Second Kings. Is there anything else that can just kind of point to Jonah as like a historical prophet as opposed to just, you know, the Israelites have this bound within their their Yeah, for, for
0: 1,800 years, the answer was no. But because of some recent, and by recent, I mean over the last 200 or so years, there's been archaeological evidence to recover the site of the city of Nineveh which I thought was fascinating when I was doing some of my study. Again, most people thought Nineveh was completely a fictional site that was made up. Um, But lo and behold, biblical archaeologists have uncovered that site and um, have uncovered a hill um, that was on top of that site. There are actually these two hills. One of the hills, the name of the hill was Aramaic for the prophet Jonah. And so to have a pagan nation name one of their sites after a Jewish prophet is a pretty good historical indication that something of significance happened there.
1: That's pretty cool. All right, so then, let me ask you this. Let's move to this idea of miracle. And I know like, we could talk about this miracle all throughout the Bible, in particular Jonah. Like Jonah in and of itself is just, it has, it, it has barriers to believe because we're talking about this guy got swallowed by a fish, for three days, he stayed there, and then he got spit out and just happened to be very close to Nineveh. Talk about this aspect of, like, miracle, no. Like, how do, how do we know that? What, what?
0: Yeah, that, that's a, it's a great question. You know, let's, let's just go through the book of Jonah and talk about the, the miraculous that occurs. You know, first, we see uh, God speaking to a man in Jonah 1.1. We see God sending a storm when that man disobeys him. We see once that man is cast into the sea, God immediately calms the storm, immediately. We see uh, God send a great fish to swallow that man. We see God preserve the life of that man while he's in the fish to some degree. Uh, by the way, there's theories, uh, there's different opinions that Jonah actually died in the fish and was resurrected and cast out um, on the, on the, the seashore. Um, but most interpreters haven't taken that position Most believe that God miraculously preserved his life for three days and three nights in the belly of the fish and that he was cast back onto the seashore in some proximity of Nineveh because he begins to make the journey in obedience. It takes about a day for him to get there. At the end of Jonah, in Jonah chapter 4, God uh, appoints a plant to grow over Jonah's little tent that he makes while Jonah is actually tailgating to see if God will destroy Nineveh like Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, an apocalyptic tailgate is what is happening in Jonah chapter 4. And the and the passage says that God appoints a plant to grow over Jonah and provide him shade. And then later, he appoints a worm to eat that plant so it falls. And so there's, there's a lot of supernatural sovereignty over nature that is all throughout the book of Jonah. And so most people fixate on the fish, but there's certainly other elements here. And so Jonah certainly falls into line of all the biblical account that Yahweh, the covenant God, is also the creator God who is sovereign over all aspects of nature. Therefore, in the Hebraic worldview, it is very consistent that God, who is sovereign over nature, will command nature to accomplish his purposes. Now, for our modern worldview that does not believe in God or believes that the world is governed mainly by material forces— this does seem like a type of supernaturalism, a type of mysticism, a type of superstition that is very hard or challenging to believe.
1: All right, let's switch gears just a little bit. So I can buy, we, we go in, we see that it's, it's a historical event. We see the evidence of miracles and just kind of understanding miracles in the Bible. You know, mm-hmm. we... we There's some good sources on that. C.S. Lewis is somebody I think of that's talked a lot about like these miracles and the expansion of God's created order and God using that because he was created to be able to do that. And so I want to ask this, though. Jonah was very he's not exactly kind in his own book, right? Will we go so far as to say that he's like a racist like, he, he wanted nothing to do with
0: them Yeah, that's a great question. And to some degree, depending on how you define race, perhaps, I think it would be a little more closer to say that he was a nationalist in the sense that he was uh, maybe not just an Israel first, but Israel only. Um, again, we actually have to offer some sympathy to Jonah because um, – He wasn't just saying, oh, Israel's better than all the countries around us. All the countries around Israel were trying to destroy Israel. And so these were enemies who had uh, been at war, killing friends, soldiers, people, deporting entire populations, uh, practicing genocide towards his nation. And so there is definitely an identification of Jonah with his people. Now, most scholars will say, both from the Second Kings 14 um, passage and from Jonah's response to the sailors in Jonah 1, that Jonah has, has closely put his identity as first being a Hebrew and then second being a God-fearer or a follower of God. That is very evident. It's also evident why there is so much um, uh, resistance to him going and proclaiming repentance to people who are not a part of the nation of Israel. And so whether Jonah was a racist is, you um, know, I know that term is fraught with a lot of modern meaning. I think it is certainly, uh, the, the book seems to indicate that he was a nationalist um, who did not want the mercy of God extended to people outside of his nation, or at least not first. And so um, the the you, you asked the question of authorship. You know, the what's so interesting is that if, you know, scholars debate whether Jonah wrote the Book of Jonah or not, but they don't debate whether he is the source material. I mean, Jonah prays a prayer in the belly of the fish in Jonah two; only he was there to be able to do that. And so, since he was the only one there, he I has mean to be he didn't, didn't have
1: like a caddy going along with him documenting the whole thing. There might have been a camera a docuseries. crew series. Yeah, there might have been a
0: camera crew, but we haven't yeah. been able to, to episode vi- two into the belly. That's right. Yeah. Hey, that would be that would be best selling TV, I think. But no, Jonah had no, no one else there with him, and so he is the source material for the book of Jonah, which means that Jonah's telling his story as um, where he, or, you know, his sinfulness is being portrayed as wicked and as a positive example of God's heart for the nations. The book of Jonah, and all the corpus of the Old Testament, is one of the strongest statements about God's love for the nations. And it is remarkable that Jonah, the nationalist, is the one who is behind that material, And so as we contemplate God's great mercy and grace on this prophet Jonah, isn't it remarkable that God used even his disobedience and even his nationalism to teach his own heart,
1: God's own heart for the nations to his people? Do you think that there was any kind of fear of Jonah that God was removing his blessing from Israel and he was just moving on to another nation?
0: Uh, I don't know. You know, I do know that Israel was up and down and that the prophets saw the prosperity or the calamity that came to Israel as a sign of God's blessing or favor that was tied to Israel's obedience or disobedience. So the prophets put their hope in Israel obeying God so that Israel would be blessed by God. And in Jonah's lifetime, Israel wasn't obeying God, but it seemed like everything was going great. Um, they were at peace in general with the, um, n- the neighboring countries around them. And so I don't know if there was a fear that God was going to remove his hand of blessing and not be faithful to his covenant promises that he had made to David. But I do think there is a lack of understanding of the mercy of God extended to pagan nations. Why would God do that um, when surely they were the nations deserving of God's wrath?
1: Yeah, I, I wonder if it's just that, like Jonah, we can identify uh, with him as like, we don't understand truly the capacity, God's capacity for forgiveness.
0: Oh, that's absolutely. I mean, it's one right. of the themes of the book of Jonah is the mercy of God. And it's the mercy of God, not just to the pagan Assyrians who were brutal in their conquest, but the mercy of God to a rebellious
1: prophet. Right. and I, And I think if we kind of dive in and we just continue to uncover that, but... We are all enemies. That's right.
0: Yeah. And that's part of the message of the book of Jonah is that uh, it's Romans 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. Right. So he's not moving on, he's adding on. That's right. The Unworthy. mercy of God. I mean, again, if we think about a passage like Ephesians 2 that God is described in rich in the New Testament. As far as I read it, I need to look, you know, do a word study. God's only described as rich in one thing in the New Testament, and that's rich in mercy. And we actually
1: see that played out in the book of Jonah. Yeah, that's good. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's uh, let's draw some parallels to the to the New Testament. Can you think of another time that a guy was in a boat asleep, and a tempest of a storm was just kind of coming up? Yeah. Thanks for like setting it up that way. That's so helpful.
0: Um, yeah. I mean, the story of Jonah and Jonah one is so mirrored in the account of Jesus who was on the Sea of Galilee when a mighty storm arises again. He's in a boat with professional sailors, professional fishermen, and yet, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus is down in the hold and he is fast asleep. And um, the, the gospel writers write it in that way that is supposed to make your mind immediately think of Jonah and Jonah chapter one. But then the gospel writers are proceed to make a far different point than what happened with Jonah. And it is that when when Jonah, Jonah was the sea was only calmed when Jonah, the wicked sinner, was thrown into the sea. Jesus, on the other hand, stands up, and Jesus does not pray, "Oh God, Oh Yahweh, calm this sea. Jesus himself speaks and says, Peace, be still. Which is what Jonah 1, again, or the theme of all of Jonah, is that God is sovereign over nature. And then the, the gospel writers are careful to show that it is Jesus who is sovereign over nature. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God, and that account reveals
1: that. Yeah, that's good. Uh, how about this? Is there any anything else from the New Testament you want to add to, to just kind of get? Well, the, well that's great. I'll give
0: a little teaser, uh, Tyler. It's a great question because um, there's uh, two additional ways of understanding the whole book of Jonah. We will see Jonah as some parallels to the Good Samaritan um, later as we dive deeper into it, and then Jonah as a parallel to the prodigal son. Um, just a little teaser here. Jonah is first the prodigal son, and one in Jonah chapter one and two, he is running away from God. And then in Jonah chapter three and four, he's much more like the older brother in the account of the prodigal son, where he is the one who is not um, having uh, he he doesn't understand the father's mercy towards the prodigal son. Um, so you know, as as I talk about this, Tyler, I've talked about Jonah being like a literary masterpiece. Um, and one of the things that we will see in the book of Jonah is Jonah is divided completely in half. In, in Jonah 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and he, he, he runs away. And then in Jonah 2, we see God's mercy on Jonah. In Jonah 3, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and he obeys by preaching to the Ninevites. And the, the mercy of God comes to the Ninevites. But then Jonah, in, four, in Jonah chapter 4, is angry again at the mercy of God. And then the very end of the book uh, just ends in a question. God, the, the book of Jonah, which, again, we'll get to, ends in a question. And it's a question not that Jonah asked God, but that God asked Jonah. And the question he asked is, There are 120,000 people living in the city of Nineveh, that great city, and many cattle. Should I not pity them? We'll talk more about that in a little bit about what that question points us to. But the literary style of Jonah, the, the way it is divided... Uh, the words that are used, the themes, the thematic language, what it accomplishes in such an economy of words. Again, it's forty eight verses, but it has it has this enduring staying power both inside the the Jewish tradition, inside the Christian tradition, and even outside the Christian tradition. I, I mean I was reading an article, Bruce Springsteen wrote a book about, or sort of a song about Jonah like ten years ago. Like this is a story somehow that continues to capture the imaginations
1: of people and continues to teach us today. Jonah is truly a literary masterpiece. Well, that's cool. Well, I'll tell you what, we, we've got a few more beyond the sermons on that, but I, I want to kind of close this one with a question that um, just just kind of see where you're at. All right. Um, based off of the richness of God's mercy and what you begin to see, what what about the collateral-like people that were affected by this? Like you talked a lot about sin. You know, you talked a lot about like sin also in your sermon, sin affects the people around you, you know, even if it wasn't their cause. And then there was a connection made where these people became worshipers of Yahweh. How does God use these seemingly negative things to bring about just that that kind of redemption? Like, like just, just dive into that a little bit, like as you've reflected and worked through that. Like, I mean, he used this thing, that this guy's disobedience for his purpose.
0: Yeah, how he does it, I don't know. He's God, and again, I, I quoted a Peter uh professor at Boston College, Roman Catholic philosopher, theologian, who says that God writes straight with crooked lines. And so how God does it in a life is always different. That God does it is always constant. And so you're right, Tyler, to point out, that God takes a disobedient prophet and, on the other side of the world in the middle of a storm and he uses it for the salvation of some pagan sailors. He takes a, a, a obedient fish and then hand delivers that prophet to a pagan nation. And that prophet then preaches a six-word sermon, which is not very good, not full of compassion, was not secret sensitive, and yet God used that for the repentance of an entire city. And so... That should give us very practical application. This is, this is what God does. God can take even our brokenness, even our even the disobedience of ourselves or those around us, and use it for our redemption and the redemption of our city. Now, what we want to strive to do is not to, 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 to let God, put God in a position where he's using our disobedience to bring that about, but rather our, our obedience. So I think that practically as a pastor at Harbor City Church, how is our church using our obedience to God to be a blessing to our neighbors around us. And so I think about, uh, I had a conversation with one of the city officials of Charleston. Uh, I had the chance to, to meet him. And um, I asked him, I said, what could one of, you know, it, it, what could a, a new church in the area, what can we do to serve the city? That was my question. And one of the observations he made is, man, you know, there's a lot of churches here. And there, there's a lot of churches here. And they just kind of serve themselves. And he's like, there, there, are, there are good churches that are doing stuff in the community. And he's like, you know, you want to know how Harbor City Church can be a good church in, in our city? Like, be a church that's actually serving the city. And it's not just growing bigger and, and everything is going great for you and your families. And so that, to me, is a call for our church to use our obedience, not not to, not to wait on God to use our disobedience to be a blessing to the city, but our obedience to serve the least of these that our city may rejoice because as Jonah 1 teaches us, man, we're,
1: we're all in this
0: boat together. We truly
1: are. Yeah, that's good, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to the rest of the chapters. It, it's so rich uh, with so much to kind of dive into. And then the implications of how big God's mercy is and what that means for our lives. So thanks, John, for sharing that with us. Harbor City, I'm excited to be a guest this week, but maybe a regular going forward. We'll see how we did. Uh, put a like in that for us so that we can continue to to enjoy that.
0: Yeah. And I'll just say as we uh, sign off, please send us questions that you're having in your community group or as you're doing some personal study of this book. Your questions help us create better podcasts. You can send that to philip at harborcitychs.com. And we would love to hear from you. Thank you. Be blessed.